This is The Weekly for Friday, November 15th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. While the impeachment hearings continue to dominate the headlines here in D.C., there is other news, including this. Earlier this month, the president pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement. One Republican critic said, quote, This is not America first. It is America isolated. That critic is former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. He served in the Obama administration and represented Nebraska as a Republican senator. We talk about that decision, climate change in general, of course, impeachment and 2020 politics, as well as the state of the Republican Party. It's all ahead on The Weekly. Secretary Hagel, let me begin with the announcement earlier this month, the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. What is the significance of that from your standpoint? Well, Steve, I think it uh, isolates the United States in a world that uh, we cannot afford to be isolated in. Uh, And when it comes to climate, which affects everyone, uh, all nations, all people, uh, everywhere, uh, that is an area that, in particular, that we need to cooperate. We need friends. We need allies. We need partners. We need to work together. And uh, even though we may disagree with specific actions uh, or thinking in all coalitions that we belong to and have belonged to over the years, the answer is not to walk away. The answer is not to just isolate ourselves and have no impact on the future of climate change and say, well, we'll do it our way and you guys just do whatever you, you want to do and however way you want to do it. Uh, climate can't be isolated that way. So I think that's the, the real significant uh, result and the dangerous consequence that uh, we are going to suffer as a result of the action that the president took. And yet there are a significant number of people in this country, especially in the Republican Party, your party, that deny climate change. What do you tell them? Well, I have been at this issue for a long time, since I was in the Senate and over the last, over the last more than 20 years. And what I say to that is uh, all you need to do is just two things. Look around you. What's been happening in our country and in the world on um, has there been any variations in climate the last 20 years? I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. Yes, there has. All over the world, and especially in this country. Second, um, listen to the scientists. Uh, listen to the facts. Um, understand what's going on worldwide, the global scope of climate change, and the tremendous shifts in temperatures and precipitation and drought areas and fires, intensity of hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, all forms of storms, you'll you'll start to get some appreciation, maybe not for a conclusion, but some appreciation for something is happening and changing. And I think that's, that's what I would say, and I have said, recognizing that climate change has been with us from the beginning. I mean, since this earth was formed, we've ice age, little ice age, melting. But this is serious because we have 7 billion people on the face of the earth. Demographers tell us we're going to put 2 billion more uh, on the face of the earth in the next 30 years. And so 
the environment becomes essential to all of us and always has been because that's clean air, that's clean water, that's food production. It touches every aspect of our lives. And this is something that we have to get right and that uh, I think the United States must lead on like we have on every issue since World War II. And, of course, it is what the leaders today will pass on to the next generation. So if, based on your argument, that we are facing a climate crisis, at what point has it reached a critical level, or are we there now? Well, I think um, in many ways, depending on how you judge it, uh, we are we are at that moment now. I mean, just take a look at the intensity of hurricanes, the frequency of uh, hurricanes, s- tropical storms. Um the shifts in drought areas for the United States over the last 20 years, uh, in rain areas, cooling of temperatures in some areas, significant increases in temperatures in other areas. These are just not for one season. Or the the Earth is getting warmer. I mean that's that's a fact, and uh, no one can deny it. And there's something going on there. Uh, fires, the intensity of fires. Now, I know we've always had fires. We'll have more. And when a forest gets dry, you're going to have probably a fire if somebody strikes a match. I, I get that. But the intensity and the scope, but but just of all of these naturals, natural disasters, we're just seeing it, it become a, a more intense, worse uh, storm or catastrophe or consequence than we've seen in the in the past. In 2020, the Green New Deal will be essentially on the ballot as one of the issues for congressional candidates and presumably who the Democrats nominate as their party leader. Your thoughts about that plan, which is massive and also very expensive? Well, I haven't studied every aspect of it. I, uh, I know what I know from the papers, from news reports. Um, I applaud their goal, but I don't think it's realistic. Uh, we need a strong economy, too. I mean, we have to balance all of America's interests. And without a strong economy, uh, a country is really limited in what what it can do. I mean, we we have been fortunate because we've had such a strong economy, the strongest in the world for many, many, many years, and that's allowed us to have the strongest military, the strongest security, uh, number one in everything, in technology, uh, so this has to be done with a scope of balance uh, to understand trade and relationships and business here. And um, the, the climate issue has to factor into that. It should, should be factored into every equation when we talk about our economics. When we talk about economics, we, sh- we should talk about climate as well. But I think the aggressiveness of the, of the plan that you mentioned uh, at least my reading of it, is probably well beyond the rational capabilities, capacities to accomplishment and still keep jobs in the economy number one in the world and the things that we must do that affects us all and would have disastrous consequences if, uh, if we lost a lot of that. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Chuck Hagel, former U.S. Defense Secretary in the Obama administration, two-term U.S. Senator from Nebraska. I want to follow up on that point, but do you remember the first time you came to Washington, D.C.? I do. I came uh, in um, April of 1971 looking for a job. Uh, I was about ready to graduate from uh, University of Nebraska in Omaha. I had come back from Vietnam. Uh, I had attended uh, four colleges 
before I went into service, um, uh, not graduating from any. I didn't have a educational background and career that uh, would be emulated by anyone. <laughs> so I needed to uh, go to college and finish, and I did. And I, I always wanted to come to Washington, and all, I was just fascinated all my life with history, politics. So I came looking for a job, spent a week here, and um, to my surprise, I didn't. I wasn't offered a job. I went to probably 100 offices in the House and the Senate, left my resume with a receptionist. Thank you, sir. We'll we'll give you a call. Of course, I, I didn't get anybody who was interested. Then I went back to Omaha. I was working for a radio station at the time, KLNG, which was the first all-news CBS station west of the, of the Mississippi River, 24 hours a day. And I enjoyed it, and it was a great job. And my uh, station manager, Frank Scott, who later became vice president of NBC News and ran all of NBC's radio stations when they owned radio stations, he said to me, well, you've always got a job with me if you want it, but I think you just need to get it out of your system, go to Washington and look for a job. And so I came back, said, Frank, um, I guess I'm going to stay here for a while. He said, well, don't give up. Uh, you've always got a job here, but if you want to go, I'll, I'll help you. A month, uh, about, no, it was a week later, a new congressman had just been elected from Omaha or from 2nd District in Nebraska that year, was on uh, my talk show. And he said, I understand you were in Washington, stopped in my office. I said, yes, I was looking for a job. I am looking for a job in Washington. So I thought the only way to, to do that was just to come to Washington. So he said, well, what are you interested in? And I said, well, anything. I just, if I could just get a job and understand how it works, and I, I, I can take it from there. He said, well, I've got a deal for you. So he offered me a job correcting questionnaires that he had just sent out, work half a day, live in his basement. Uh, it wouldn't cost me anything. He'd give me $200 a month, and uh, I could then look for a job. While I'm while I'm there, so um, I didn't think that was a, a grand, Gloria, glorious entry into Washington doing it that way, but I talked to Frank Scott and said, "What do you think?" He said, "No, McAllister, Congressman McAllister is a good man. You'd learn a lot. I think you should do it. You can always come back and work for me." So I did. Packed up. I had an old Chevy. I packed it up, and uh, I got here on July fourth, nineteen seventy one. And uh, a year later, I was his chief of staff, and that's how I got to Washington. Let me go back to your point about striking that balance between the economy and the environment. So in order to achieve the Chuck Hagel goals of trying to reverse climate change, what does that balance look like? Well, start with a continuing um, of our strong, stable competitive economy in a world that's becoming more and more competitive. Um, that's what I think is, is, a, is a fundamental, uh, one of the foundations. Second is a recognition that our, our resources, our natural resources, our air, our water, um, our land, uh, is, is just as important as anything and may, maybe more important than anything because that's what, what sustains us. Um, those two essentials have to be in, in some balance and working together to promote a cleaner world and the things that we want, not just for the aesthetics, but for the reality of, of clean water and clean air and 
food production, pandemic health issues stem uh, from uh, polluted areas and pollution. So that has to work hand in hand with growing your economy because your economy represents jobs. It represents hope for all people. It represents uh, doing better than previous generations. It represents more education, more technology, a quality of life, a better quality of life for all people. And you can't separate the two. So I would start there as defining where I would start. And then everything flows from that. Obviously, relationships around the world, alliances, your national security, your intelligence, all the institutions of governance that uh, make make the system work. Um, and that also includes trust and confidence in those institutions. So I think that would be the approach. You must be reading my notes because that's my next question. We talked about alliances. The whole idea of pulling out of the Paris Agreement is really part of the larger issue of this administration called America First. You served as the defense secretary. You've worked with our allies across the globe in Europe and in Asia. What's your view of this president and his foreign policy? America First is not um, a foreign policy. Uh, It is not a strategy. Um, It's a statement. Um, I think it's a dangerous statement, as he has continued to make it. One of the last times he made that statement to the world was at the U.N. General Assembly in September when he gave a speech and talked about America first. Well, every nation on earth will always respond in its own self-interest. That's not new. That's predictable, and that's good. But uh, we need alliances in this very complicated and dangerous, volatile world. The alliances that we built, uh, the world leaders after World War II in that 10-year period, led by the United States, but the Germans, the French, the British, all of them were part of it, um, envisioned a world totally different from the first 50 years of the 20th century, where we had seen... uh, two world wars and never before so much slaughter. We had to do something different. These alliances, which I've referred to as coalitions of common interests, were built on common interests. They didn't solve every problem. They couldn't solve every problem, but they were a baseline. To start with, they were better than sending armies against each other. Uh, They were forums to debate and talk about common interests and figure problems out. And they were also... uh, platforms that would develop to engender some trust and confidence in each other so you could start working on your differences and where you had problems with each other. United Nations, Collective Security in NATO, IMF, World Bank, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, now now the WTO, dozens of international development banks and institutions. These were all in the interest of all people in the world. Better education, better jobs, promoting environment, doing things that were important on a global basis. We're still citizens of sovereign nations, as it should be. We're not giving up sovereign rights, but we're also global citizens. Today, our economy, U.S. economy, uh, is interconnected to the world economy. Uh, So we're not going to retreat from that or unravel that. Technology has forced us into areas that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we, we couldn't imagine. So uh, it's really important that when we talk about the United States, which has been the world's leader 
and I don't think it's been a great burden on us. Everything that we have done and and paid for and contributed to um, has brought back to our interest and to our benefits uh, in great returns. I, I think every one of these institutions that we've led and been part of um, have been strong and wise investments for our future. So when we look at uh, America First or the approach that this administration has taken and is taking to foreign policy, I think it's very dangerous. I think it's very short-sighted. I heard uh, when I was in Europe, just uh, I got back last week, was in Europe for two weeks. I heard it from all the Europeans. You can't trust America. We have no confidence in America's word. You have a president that talks about constantly America first, the rest of us are freeloaders, and we've never done anything for you, for America. That's just not true. I mean, just take my old job as Secretary of Defense. The United States of America could not project its power around the world as we do now and as we have done since World War II with allies because we'd have no bases, no place to put our soldiers, and no ports, no harbors for our ships, uh, no runways, and no facilities all over the world to take care of our planes and all of our national security platforms that we have located all over the world. We'd be very limited. It, it isn't just national security, but but it's everything. So I think it's a very dangerous time, especially with what's going on, not just in the Middle East, but uh, in Korea, the unsettled areas of Africa. Uh, you look around Western democracies today, nationalism, populism on the rise. What have these institutions really done for us? The questioning whether they're good or not. I think it's a breakdown in trust and confidence in these institutions. So I think this is a much more dangerous time than a lot of people think because you've got this this volatility that I've not seen really in my lifetime everywhere. And there there's a possibility you could see some of these institutions and alliances really unravel. Alliances must be adapted and adjusted to the current realities uh, of our time in order to stay relevant with the challenges of our time. So you're constantly adjusting and adapting um, like we do in everything, like you do in broadcasting, like you do in, in every area of endeavor. But to throw it all out, to just unravel it all and say it's not worked, which is not true. There's been more freedom in the world today than ever before, more prosperity, uh, more human rights issues that have been brought to the front and help people, technology, progress, and strides in every every uh, area of endeavor, medicine, science, space. So it's worked pretty well the last 70 years. Not perfect. Still got a lot of things to do. But the answer is not to say we retreat into our boundaries and America first and let the alliances shrivel up. That's not the answer. The answer is to build on those alliances, understand what's going on in the world and what's going to happen in the next 25 years, adapt, adjust, prepare. Uh, we do it better than anybody else. And I think President Trump is really short-circuiting who we are. So based on that, Secretary Hagel, let's turn to the political component in all of this. As you talk to your Republican colleagues on Capitol Hill, you served 12 years in the U.S. Senate. Publicly, so far, 
they continue to support this president. Privately, what is their view? Well, privately, uh, they uh, not all, but many have a, a different view, I think, of the president. Uh, I don't think there is a lot of personal loyalty uh, to President Trump. Uh, first, this is a president who has never really been a Republican. Uh, he has never done anything for the Republican Party versus a guy like Nixon, for example. Uh, I, I was here during Watergate, and uh, I, I had a ringside seat to all of that. He had a lot of personal loyalty from Republicans because of what he had, had done. He'd been in the House, he'd been in the Senate, vice president, always worked on behalf of the party. This president doesn't have that. Um, this president uh, does things totally different than than any past politician, certainly any past uh, president. And, it, and it, it often puts the Republican Party and Republican members of Congress in a difficult position to have to uh, defend that. Um, you go back to 2016, I mean, how he campaigned, um, I mean, he degraded the Republican Party. He degraded his Republican primary opponents, called them all names. I, I didn't get this country in trouble. It's the political hacks like you all standing on the stage with me kind of thing. So that I think that's a reality with some of these uh, members in the House and the Senate that I've talked to. Uh, obviously, uh, President Trump controls the Republican Party. He controls a strong base in the Republican Party, which is a, a deadly, uh, a deadly serious part of campaigning and getting reelected and, and getting through a primary. Uh, those are all political realities. And after all, this business uh, does have a, a self, uh, a self-respect uh, component to it. But um, also, uh, you uh, have a self-interest component to politics, and you will always respond in that self-interest. So I think there, there's a thin veil here of how much and how deep and how wide that support base is, If depending on where the, this impeachment inquiry goes. Um, I mean, I, you look at Senator Mitch Romney. Now, he's... He's an atypical United States senator. He just got here. Um, uh, he was a very successful governor of Massachusetts, and he was the 2012 Republican presidential candidate. So it's pretty hard for anybody to question his Republican credentials uh, or his family's, like his father was a very popular governor of Michigan. So he's taken a different approach uh, publicly than, than most any of the other Republican senators. I think his approach is the right approach. Um, but um, it, it takes some leadership to, to give cover to those who may, depending how this inquiry goes, may, may get to a point where, you know, I think the president did pull something that was wrong and, and does equate to uh, impeachment. That's not conviction but to a trial in the Senate. So I think the the jury, so to speak, is still out on that. But I think that support base is, 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 pretty, is pretty slim. And you look at the reality of the, the margin that the Republicans hold in the United States Senate and what we know of polling numbers now. You've got four incumbent Republican 
Senate seats in in some real trouble right now, in some uh, real deep trouble. I think you've got four open seats, Republican-held open seats. You've got uh, the Republicans out of 35 seats uh, up for re-election. Republicans are in control about 23 of those, I think. Um, Democrats probably have one one seat, I think, of the 11 or so that's up uh, for re-election in some trouble. That's Alabama. So uh, you, you're seeing that reality. The House reality is the, it would have to be a big turnaround for the Republicans to take control of the, of the House again, if possible. So you've got a lot at stake for the party here, not just Trump and the president, but, but for the party. You're seeing a lot what happened uh, a week ago. Virginia, Pennsylvania, suburbs, Kentucky, not not good news for the Republicans. So as you assimilate all these dynamics and facts and knowing uh, that, that everything is uncertain for the next 12 months, th- these are very clear warning signs for any Republican, which affects support for the president. And right now, I mean, obviously, the, the, if that inquiry leads to impeachment, articles of impeachment, and it goes to the Senate. Uh, right now, based on what we kn- know, I, I think the president would be okay. I don't think he would, would be convicted in, in, the, in the Republican-controlled Senate. But we've got a ways to go, and we've got a lot that's going to play out. Well, to that point, again, this is based on what you've seen thus far. If you were in the Senate today and you had to vote, mm-hmm. how would you vote? Well, I don't know if I'd be able to give you that answer because what I think you need to do is take – because this is a, a solemn responsibility, a very solemn responsibility. And I said as a juror, as you know, in 1998 in the Clinton impeachment. Did you ever think you'd live through three impeachments <laughs> in your lifetime? No, I didn't. Uh, I, I really didn't. And um, Clinton's was a, a surprise and this one is a surprise too because after I watched it as I closely as I did – being that chief of staff to a Republican congressman in 1974, I didn't think we'd ever see that again. But um, how I would vote obviously would be uh, determined by the evidence. If, in fact, the House votes articles of impeachment out and the House impeaches the president, uh, it will then go to the Senate. I would want to carefully... uh, read and understand those articles of impeachment as to why the House did what a grand jury would do. But then I would want to hear from the prosecutors in the case, which are the House Judiciary majority members, and uh, the defense lawyers, which are the president's lawyers, if, if that's where it goes. So I, I, would, uh, I, would, hold, I would withhold my, my judgment as to how I would vote until I could, I could hear it all. But at the same time, if you ask me, um, do I think an impeachment inquiry is needed uh, today? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're talking about major issues here on, on abuse of power and lying and cover-up. Now, we'll see where that goes. But I certainly would have voted for uh, the inquiry, and, um, I, I, and I'll be very interested as the hearings have now started to open and how all of that plays out. But I would withhold my judgment as a juror until I could see all the facts. And, of course, Secretary Hegel, impeachment is just emblematic of the, the toxic 
tone here in Washington, D.C. The New York Times did an extensive study. The more than 11,000 tweets by President Trump and about half of them were attacks on other people. But he's only part of the problem. And my question is, can we return to normalcy in terms of the political environment or is it impossible to put the tube back in the bottle? Well, I hope we can. Um, we have social media now that has changed everything. During 1974, that impeachment, we didn't have social media. Uh, we didn't have C-SPAN. Uh, we had three networks and, and PBS. Um, that all has changed everything as well. We're not going to unravel that and go back to a, a time of dinosaurs. Uh, nor should we. Just watch Fox at night or MSNBC. <laughs> I mean, it's like they're two different planets. That's right. So uh, I, I hope that we can eventually get back to some normalcy. I mean, when, what do I mean by normalcy? When I got elected to the United States Senate in 96, I had the good fortune the first few years of my service in the Senate to serve with a lot of World War II generation people. And they're all gone. All gone. Um, Democrats and Republicans, left and right, that believed strongly in what they were doing, but they had a purpose. They understood their responsibility. Make the government work. Uh, we didn't defile each other. We didn't personalize anything. We didn't call each other names like a bunch of sixth-grade uh, schoolyard kids. Um, we, we understood, and I take myself out of this. I, I'm not saying that I'm anything that's particularly virtuous, but you understood that... <clears throat> You were representing a, a system, an institution, democracy. That was pretty important. It hadn't worked like like it's worked in the United States ever in any country. It's brought so much to so many for so long. And we took those responsibilities strong, strongly, I mean, and carefully and seriously. And we have degenerated now into just name-calling and just defined everything down, standards, the office, and so on. I think there will be a time when we will come, come back. Uh, now, here's the reason I do. Uh, I look at last year's election, 2018. That um, election to the House represented the largest group since 1974 of new members, the Watergate year. Um, most uh, Democrats, but there were Republicans also, new Republicans elected. I know uh, many of those new members. Some of them work for me. Um, I don't know them all, but I know some. And I know the bios of most of them. But they're Democrats and Republicans that come from different kinds of backgrounds. But they all have one thing in common as to why they ran. And that was that uh, this country is better than what we're seeing. This country is better than how it's being led today. And they understood you got to work together in a democracy. I mean, if if you if you don't, there's only one alternative, and that's dictatorship. Why don't we just let the president make all the decisions? And these new members, they sit together in the House floor, Republican and Democrats, talk to each other. They have their own opinions, strong opinions, but they make it work. And they will rise to leadership positions. In, in the not-too-distant future, I'm, I'm hopeful that the election this year in 2020 will produce the same kind of people that uh, we, we saw produced in 2018. Um, I think it's always important to remember that nothing happens in a democracy. Nothing happens in this country um, that um, is, is more important than the ballot box because everything starts at the ballot box. Elected elections produce leaders. Leaders select 
other leaders, not necessarily elected leaders, but cabinet members, people helping run a government. But everything is fundamental to the democratic process and to the election, the election box and who and how people vote. So as long as we can preserve that and preserve some common sense and integrity in our system, and that means honesty in, in our system, I think we're going to be fine. We're going to go through a very difficult period. Steve, I think this next year, probably the next two years, it's going to be very difficult in this country and in the world. But I think we'll come out of it at the other end. I'm, I've always been an optimist, but I'm also very much a realist. And we see these kind of ebbs and flows in our country's history, but never, I think, as serious as what we're seeing now. Back to 1974, things were divided and polarized and bad, not near as bad as today. But the system worked in Watergate. It did work in Watergate. I like your optimism. I want to conclude with this question as a lifelong Republican. If you look historically for the sitting president in a strong economy, he is reelected. If Donald Trump is reelected in 2020, what does it mean for the country? What does it mean for the Republican Party? Well, judging uh, from the last three years, uh, based on what I've seen of this president, his policies, how he does his job, uh, over the last three years. If he is reelected, I think it's a very dangerous time for the world and in this country. One of the reasons I say that is because he has just <clears throat> run over all the constitutional authorities of the Congress, um, refuses to cooperate on, on any issue, uh, uses executive orders to usurp the constitutional authorities uh, of the Congress when it comes to the purse, appropriations of money, um, and example after example, dozens. If if he is reelected, in my opinion, there will be nothing really to stop him. And um, I include the courts. The courts, the, the three, the third of the co-equal branches of government, uh, was set up in, by the founders as much as, in, as anything as an, in, as an institutional referee between the executive and the legislative. Uh, this president has expressed uh, great glee and confidence that he has now uh, put a fourth of the appellate court judges, federal appellate court judges, in place. Um, pretty much everyone knows it's a, about a 5-4 split in the Supreme Court. Um, he, interestingly enough, has appointed two of those, which some presidents never get one. Um, and he's done that in about two years. So um, that is a factor, too. So I, um, I I recognize, and I'm a Republican, I recognize that's a, a, that's a pretty dramatic response to your question. But I've never shied away from answering questions, and I may well be wrong. I've been wrong before. But... Um, I don't think it bodes well for this country. And um, the people of this country will make the decision, not me, I'll vote, but um, they'll, they'll make a decision on who they want to lead this country uh, the next four years. We appreciate your assessment. Hope you'll come back again. Thank you, Steve. Will. Former Defense Secretary, former Senator Chuck Hagel. A reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. Thank you.